Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. How many of you guys have been enjoying the George and George show? All right. Now, there's only two more episodes of that. And so we're looking for some sponsors. We're trying to see if we can monetize on this uh, and and, uh, see if we can keep this going or not. But there are two more episodes. And I have to tell you, uh, I have very little to do with that show. The comedic genius behind that is Brother David Adams. I tell you what, if you ever see him around, you need to thank him for all of the work that he has put into those. uh, Just trying to inspire you to sign up for fine arts. I tell you what, it's an elaborate plan of his to try to get you signed up for fine arts. Arts, and so it's been a lot of fun doing that. We should have a new episode of that tomorrow, and you have no idea the amazing guest star that we have tomorrow as well. So it's going to be a lot of fun, and uh, we'll have a great time there. First Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to read a good portion of this chapter starting in verse number 19. The Bible says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, to them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law, to them that are without the law as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I may gain them that are without law. Verse number 22, to the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some." And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, So fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this passage that lies before us this morning. And Lord, I pray for these next few moments that we would be able to learn from this godly counsel of the Apostle Paul. Lord, I pray that we would learn from his example this morning, and I pray that you would help us to draw closer to you, and that we would be honest with ourselves from what we hear from your word this morning. We promise to give you the praise for all that you do in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. On January 30th, 2014, Jose Salvador Alvarenga was found drifting on a fishing boat around the Marshall Islands. He had begun his fishing excursion off the coast of Mexico when his ship hit a five-day-long storm which caused his ship to be severely damaged and thrust him out into the Pacific Ocean. Now, a search party was sent out by his employer, uh, but it only lasted for two days. And if I had any advice for Jose, I would say, you need to find some new friends, okay? If they're only willing to look for two days for you, but they looked for two days and they just, they just gave up. 
Jose and his fishing partner was uh, out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and caught fish and turtles and jellyfish and seabirds to survive aboard their ship. And they drank rainwater and turtle blood for hydration. His fishing partner eventually passed away. He uh, died from starvation. He could no longer stomach eating the raw meat. And after drifting about 6,000 miles from Mexico to the Marshall Islands, he finally hit a beach house and jumped off of the ship in the Marshall Islands and swam to safety. Jose would become the longest surviving castaway in history, being adrift for 14 months. There are many Christians today, however, who are secretly drifting from God. Eventually, this drifting becomes known, but most of the time it begins in secret. It goes throughout stages and it will go unnoticed if we, are not, uh, if we are not heeding the word of God and constantly checking our spiritual lives. Now the word castaway here in verse number 27 is used only once in the Bible, but the Greek word is used pretty often throughout the New Testament. It literally means to be rejected or unworthy. Now, we would think of the term castaway as a nautical term, but that's not how the Apostle Paul is using this term here. He's using it as an illustration for a race. He's picturing a a herald who is summoning the contestants and proclaiming the prizes at the end of the race. This herald also is announcing those who have been ejected or disqualified from the race. Now, in Greek culture, you had to be a Greek citizen to be a part of one of these races. And when you were ejected from this race, it did not mean that you lost your Greek citizenship. It just meant that you could no longer run in that race. And it is a picture this morning of the Christian life for us. This passage is not referring to a rejection of salvation. It's not, it's not talking about a rejection of a citizenship from heaven, if you will. It's speaking of being rejected from an eternal reward. Look back at verse number 17 of our passage. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not by power in the gospel. He is speaking of a reward, the fruit of the Christian life seeing souls saved and lives changed, seeing God use yourself in an amazing way out in the ministry. And yet we see many in our culture and in our churches today who are being ejected from the race. They have become a castaway. A castaway preaches to others while not controlling himself. A castaway preaches to others but has no sight on the future heavenly prize. A castaway preaches to others as a show, but has no spiritual depth. God forbid that a castaway would stand and preach the gospel to others when he cannot even control himself. 
And yet this occurrence happens all throughout our churches and has happened countless times over and over again. This should be your greatest fear as a Bible college student and your greatest fear going into the ministry. Serving God, being in front of others, but secretly in the depths of your heart, becoming a castaway. How can we keep from being ejected from the race? How can we avoid being a castaway? Let me give you three determinations this morning to avoid being a castaway. The first determination I see is found in verse number 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. The first determination I see from this passage is that I must declare Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. The Apostle Paul is using some very strong language to communicate his desire to preach the gospel in his generation. The same wording is used by the Apostles in Acts chapter 4 verse number 20 as they stand before the Sanhedrin. They say, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. This is a necessity. I must declare. You see, eternity will not be impacted by our strategies. It will not be impacted by our creativity, our talent, our abilities, our education, our personalities, our bank account, our earthly status. Eternity will only be impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse number 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power unto, uh, of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Now so many times we, we neglect this power. Have you ever heard the saying, if it was a snake, it would have bit me? How many have ever heard that? You're searching for something, you're looking for something, and you just completely missed it. Now, a lot of times that's what we do when we are going through ministry and we don't even tap into the power of the gospel. Now, there's a common occurrence that happens in our home, in the Burt home, and uh, it has to do with this diaper bag. This is Ella's diaper bag, and usually it's hanging on a hook in our bathroom or in the car or something. And I mean, we, we can't go anywhere without this thing. Okay? This, is, this is a valuable piece uh, for the Burt family. So whenever we go around, usually my wife is changing Ella's diaper or doing something or in need of something. And she'll say, hey, Nathan, can you go get this from the diaper bag? And usually she'll say something like, uh, it's in the side pocket. Now, if you've ever seen one of these diaper bags before, there are about 26 uh, outside, in, or outside side pockets, okay? I mean, you're, you're, you're digging through everything. You can't, I mean, there's no way you can, is this the side pocket? There's side pockets in the side pocket. Uh, there are side pockets everywhere. She says, can you get the diaper rash cream? Hurry, uh, Ella is in need of the diaper rash cream. And I'm trying to figure out where, where is the side pocket? Is it on the outside? Is it on the inside? And she says, okay, well, it's on the inside. And as I open up the inside, there are probably about 152 inside pockets. 
There are pockets on every side. Well, what side are you talking about? If you hold it this way or hold you this way, and is it in this pocket or that pocket? And then eventually, the, the, the only conclusion you can have, and this is the conclusion of just about every husband or father uh, who is thinking logically at the time, is just to dump all of it out and try to find the diaper rash cream. Now, I tell you what, this happens more with just the diaper bag. The other night, my, uh, my wife was putting Ella to bed and she realized that Ella's swaddle was uh, still in the dryer. And she said, would you go down and get the swaddle from the dryer? Well, of course, I'm a good uh, submissive husband. And so I go down <laughs> and uh, I go down and get and start digging through laundry. And one of my pet peeves in life is digging through laundry to try to find just one little tiny item. I'm trying to remember what the swaddle looks like. I'm trying to remember what pattern, what color, what is this, what fabric is it? I just cannot find this thing. And I'm digging through trying to find this swaddle. And I tell you what, it just, it, it seemed like an eternity trying to find this swaddle. And eventually I just said, I'm going to have to go back to my wife and tell her, I'm sorry, but I cannot find this at all. And so I had to, the walk of shame, go back and uh, I, I went to the bottom of the stairs and she was at the top and I said, I can't find it. It's, it's not there. I can't find it. I'm so sorry. She said, oh, it's okay. I just found it uh, in her room. Now, no matter if it's a diaper bag or whether it's a swaddle that you're trying to find in a dryer, you know, with that dryer, that swaddle wasn't there in the first place. I had some inaccurate information but God doesn't give us inaccurate information. And the gospel is not hidden in some side pocket this morning. If it's hidden in your side pocket, then you've neglected it. It's not an important thing to you. You think that you can go through the motions of Bible college and ministry and uh, academics and relationships and go throughout all of these aspects of life and the gospel is just tucked in some side pocket somewhere and you're not even taking it out to be able to use it with great power. Unfortunately, many of us have changed Paul's statement here to, in our own lives to, woe is me if I preach the gospel. This is illustrated by the fact that 198 students on last week's focus report said that they were at the Saturday college soul winning rally when only 132 students were counted in the Saturday morning soul winning rally. You're not just neglecting the gospel, now you're lying about it. God help a student body who is coming to Bible college to change the world can't even show up for a 15-minute soul-winning rally. I'm not talking about those who are on bus rallies and church rallies. I know we're split up everywhere. I'm talking about people who said that they were here who were not here. You're neglecting the gospel. You're missing it. God help us if we're training a generation of Christian service to, servants to go out into ministry and can't even show up to a 15-minute soul winning rally. 
I did a little bit more math. When you do the math of how many doors were knocked last week compared to our entire student body, an average of 22 doors per student. 30 students didn't even turn in their focus report last week. We come to chapel and we hear sermon after sermon after sermon about the gospel, the power of the gospel. And it's very easy to sit here and amen and get excited about it. But man, I got I to gotta sleep in on Saturday mornings. I'm sorry. And man, I, you know, I'm, I know I'm going to get demerits if I don't put on there that I was there. So I'm just going to lie about it and say that I was there. God help us. How can we go out into this dying world and see the power of the gospel when we're around it every single day and we still haven't tapped into the power, the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You're preparing for ministry and you can't even show up to a rally? You can't even go out and knock more than 22 doors on a Saturday morning? How are we going to change the world? How are we going to train laborers for the harvest? Some of us need to repent, not only of lying, but of neglecting the gospel. I must declare, when is the last time that you took the gospel out of the side pocket and used it to see the power that only it can bring? Number one, I must declare The second declaration I see here is in verse number 19. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. Now in this chapter, chapters 8, 9, and 10, this is, there's a continuing theme throughout this section of the book. And it's, uh, it's Paul addressing the subject of eating meat offered to idols. Now, some Christians uh, in this time believed that idols had no power. They were fake idols. There there was no reason to avoid these idols or to uh, avoid eating meat offered to these idols. And and, uh, they believed that God was the one true God. And they had the perspective that they could freely eat this meat that was offered to them. Turn back to chapter number 8, verse number 4. He says, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered and sacrifices unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. So he says, some of you guys are saying, these idols are fake. There's no problem with me going to a marketplace or going to uh, this temple to just buy meat and to not participate in their worship, but just to purchase some meat uh, at this time, especially in this very wicked city of Corinth. And yet we read that other Christians who were saved out of this wicked Corinthian idolatry avoided the town halls and the temples where this meat was sold. Look at verse number seven. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled." Using this specific example, Paul begins to elaborate on Christian liberty. Turn back to chapter number 9, verse number 22. To the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. 
Now, what is the reason for this? Why is he going to defer to these fellow brothers? It's all for the sake of the gospel. It's all for the sake of declaring the gospel. And he says, I become all things to all men. Now, this phrase has been uh, hijacked by those who would uh, give a pragmatic form of ministry, uh, would defend more of a contemporary worship style or even doctrinal compromises, becoming all things to all men. But that is not the context of what Paul is talking about here. Look at verse number 19 again. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself, or the next three words, servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Paul isn't saying, well, I'm becoming all things to all men and I'm just throwing out uh, the, the, the commandments of the Bible and I'm just gonna live however I want. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm becoming a servant. I am limiting my liberty so that I can have opportunities to share the gospel. Look at verse number uh, 20. And unto the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law is under the law. I'm restricting my liberty that I might gain them that are under the law to them that are without the law is without, without law. Now, I love the little parentheses there in this, in this verse because it's almost like the apostle Paul just knows exactly what the Corinthians are thinking, okay? This is a very wicked culture, wicked city. This is a very carnal church. And so he says, I'm going to be without the law to those who are without the law. And he, he says, okay, tap the brakes, tap the brakes. Let me give you this. Okay. Look what he says. Being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ. So he says, guys, I'm not talking about just throwing away all the commandments of scripture. I'm not, I'm not talking about throwing off that moral law that God has put in our lives. I know that's what the Corinthians were thinking when they read to not be under the law, but he, he makes it very clear. That's not what I'm talking about. I am saying that there is still a law to Christ. I'm still bound to obey God and his word in that way. So, so, so don't run with that. And that, unfortunately, that concept has been very popular in our churches today as well. Let's continue. Why is he doing this? That I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. He's not talking about flexing his Christian liberty. He's talking about restraining his Christian liberty. He's speaking about deferring to another. Now, when I say deferring, I'm not referring to uh, the poor schmuck that gets stuck outside of the Revels building holding the door for all 500 students coming through after chapel. That's not what I'm talking about uh, when I'm saying deferring. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I was in college, there was always one guy who got stuck there. And I think he actually enjoyed it. Uh, I don't know if he was looking for a date or what, but I think he actually enjoyed being stuck there. And I don't, I, I, as I've seen uh, this year, some of you guys are taking turns at it, so I appreciate that. That's not really what we're talking about, deferring someone in that way. It's much, much deeper. Now, turn over to chapter 10. Again, all these chapters are connected together. Turn over to chapter 10, verse 23. This is the thesis of his entire argument here. What is Paul teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 23? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not what? Expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Turn back to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse number 9. 
Again, he's repeating this over and over again to the Corinthians. He's saying, I am deferring to one another. I am limiting my liberty for the sake of the gospel, for the testimony of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 9. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. You know, oftentimes as young people, we want to pull down the higher standard of the previous generation. We mock it. We make fun of it. We brag that we, we know better than what the previous generation had. I mean, you just bring up the word culottes and you're going to have a really good joke in the dorm, right? We, we mock higher standards a lot of times. And we understand that some standards uh, have been historically held, are not grounded in Scripture. They're going to differ from person to person. But Paul did the exact opposite. He submitted himself to the brother with the higher standard, the weaker brother who would not eat the meat. Look at verse number, uh, Romans 14. Romans 14, turn over there. This is another parallel passage about this. We read so many blogs. We hear podcasts, books, conferences, all devoted to pulling down a higher standard. But is that what Paul would have done? Look at Romans chapter 14, verse 21. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. He says, you got the liberty. You can go to the temple and buy meat. There's nothing that says you can't. Uh, you, you guys know that God is the one true God and that these idols are fake. So, so, so you have the right doctrine there and you're, you're not necessarily doing anything wrong. But if it, if it causes your brother to stumble or be offended or be made weak and it grieves the conscience of your brother, then it's good to not do that anymore. What do we do in our generation we post it on Instagram? We, 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 try, to, we try to make a statement. We, try, we have to release the next podcast to tell someone why this is, this is not in the Bible and why this higher standard is ridiculous. God says in verse number 22, I want, to see, I want you to see this in Romans 14, verse number 22. Hast thou faith, or aren't you so confident about this? Whether you're eating the meat or not, hast thou faith? Are you confident in what you are saying? Great. Have it to thyself before God. What is he saying? He's saying, guys, whether you're eating meat or not eating meat, great. I'm glad that you're confident in it. Be strong in that conviction, but keep it to yourself. Don't be arguing about it. Don't be causing divisions about it. You don't have to start a podcast about it. You don't have to have a dorm discussion about it. You don't have to tell your life story on social media and how you've been delivered from all of the legalism of your past church. No, you don't have to tell the world. Defer to one another. Take the high road. If someone has a higher standard than be thankful for it and move on. Don't feel like it's your life calling to pull everything down as this new generation. The third determination I see here, not only I must declare, I must defer, but lastly, I must discipline. 
Look at verse number 25. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it for an, to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, verse 26, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it unto subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The Apostle Paul is using two illustrations of Greek athletes here. He's using the illustration of a race. We've talked about that already. He's saying that I don't run aimlessly. I have a goal. I have my sight set on the goal. I'm not going to be distracted one way or the other. I'm going to make sure that I'm deferring to my fellow brothers, but my main goal is to declare the gospel. I'm going to keep my eyes on the prize. I don't run aimlessly. See, he says, uh, I therefore so run not as uncertainly. But then he uses another illustration here of boxing. How many guys, any fans of boxing in here? Now, this Greek boxing that he's referring to is very different than uh, what we would refer to as boxing today. This word keep under, that it's used in verse 27, but I keep under my body, literally is talking about striking under the eye or even giving a black eye to your flesh. We need some Bible college students who will realize that there's some sin in my life, there's some fleshly activity that I just need to give a black eye to. I just need to mortify it, Romans 8, 13. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. He uses this illustration here, so fight I not as one that beateth the air. He's referring to what could be called shadow boxing. Uh, it kind of reminds me of those old Saturday morning cartoons where you got two, two cartoon characters fighting and you got the one just kind of standing there all confidently and you got the other ridiculous one just running circles around him, just, yeah, yeah, I got you, I got you, I, I'm, I'm gonna beat you. And it's just running all around and then what usually happens in that cartoon, the one guy who's just calm and you know he's usually a lot bigger than the other guy, just boom, and he's out, all right? That's the picture here, beating the air. He's saying, I, I'm not just going around just beating the air. I'm not going around just picking a fight with everybody. I'm just not going around purposelessly. Uh, I'm going to not fight the air. I have a purpose. I have a real enemy, and I must mortify that enemy. Now, this ancient Greek boxing, I think we have a picture of a statue uh, in a museum here of what these boxing gloves look like in the ancient Greek world. Uh, Ioneid uh, writes of Intellis' boxing gloves being made of ox hide bands with lead and iron sewn into them. Spartan boxers would box and fight to the death. We're not talking about just a, a, a little squabble. Now, I don't know about you, but I have really no desire to get in any type of boxing rink with any person but especially with a person who has lead sewn into his boxing gloves. What is Paul saying here? He is illustrating this fight against sin. He is saying, I'm not going to fight the air. I have a real enemy. And every single day of my life, I will mortify that enemy. And I will make sure that I am living for God. 
2 Corinthians 7, 11, for behold, this self-same thing that ye sorrowed after a godly source. He's, he's, he could be referring to this 1 Corinthians letter. He's saying this letter came and made you sorrowful. Uh, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what ve vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Paul is saying, I wrote this previous letter to you and it made you sorry. It made you repent and you had great zeal. You had great desire to get right with God and you had such a revenge against that sin that you would not let it in your lives ever again. And God give us a generation of Bible college students who would mortify their sin, would punch that sin in the eye and would continue serving God and would not stand in a pulpit someday himself it cast away. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there hath no temptation taken you which is not common to man, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. Amen. We cannot be a college that changes the world if we cannot be changed ourselves. 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul keeps this illustration in his last letter. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. What's your goal? What's your goal in life? What motivates you to get through those difficult times? What are you fighting don't fight the brother who has the higher standard than you. There are real enemies living inside of you, your own flesh. There are real enemies around you, the world and the devil who are fighting you every step of the way. Make sure that you are fighting the right enemy. Warren Wearsby sums up this chapter well. He says, in order to give up his rights and have the joy of winning souls, I will declare and I will defer. Paul had to discipline himself. That is the emphasis of this entire chapter. Authority, rights, must be balanced by discipline. If we want to serve the Lord and win his reward and approval, we must pay the price. Verse 14 of chapter 9. Look at this verse and we'll be done. Summarizes the entire chapter. 1 Corinthians 9, 14. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. How can I avoid being a castaway? I must declare. There's nothing that's gonna stop me from declaring. I must defer for the sake of the gospel so I can have more opportunities to declare the gospel. I'm gonna defer my rights. I'm going to give in to that higher standard. Number three, I must discipline. I cannot live a lazy, unproductive life. I have my sights set on eternity. Bible college students, are you doing ministry right now as a castaway? Are you riding that bus? And you know you're a castaway. Are you standing in a pulpit or in a lectern somewhere on Sundays teaching a group of kids or teenagers 
and you know that you're a castaway? Or do you just need to make the decision this morning, God, I will never be a castaway. I will declare, I will defer, and I will discipline. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you.